History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happened just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to Episode 15, Norse Code, Part 2. In our last episode, we discussed some of the mythological factors that can give us a little bit of insight into how and why the Norse were considered to be the fierce warriors that they were. In this episode, I'd like to go a little further with that idea and take a look at two of the heroic sagas that come down to us from this region, the tales of Beowulf and Sigurd. But before we do that, I have a question. What, dear listener, motivates you? What drives you? Would it be money? Love? Food? Goals? Dreams? The desire to be the best? Just some recognition? There are a million different answers to the question, each one meaning something to the person being asked. For the men and women of the Norse sagas, the answer was fame, and not just the kind of fame that is here for a little while and then fades away, like a one-hit wonder on the radio, or even the kind of fame that comes in sports, where you may hold a record that only a very specific set of people may have heard of or care about, or can break. No, for the Norse, they wanted the cheers kind of everybody-knows-your-name kind of fame. They wanted their stories told and retold and retold and retold so that everyone everywhere would know who they are and, w- and who they were. Why is that? Well, as we saw in the last episode, there was one thing missing from the Norse mythologies that is present in most other mythologies and religions, and that's the concept of immortality. As we said last time, Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, was the ever-present threat looming just around the corner Now, to give a quick recap, Ragnarok would see the eventual destruction of the entire world. Everything was going to die. Men, women, children, animals, monsters, and even the gods themselves. Only two humans and the god Baldr were supposed to survive Ragnarok, while literally everything and everyone else would be gone. As far as I can discern, there was no real concept of immortality as understood by the Greeks, Romans, or even Christians. No one could change their fate, not even Odin the Allfather himself. So what was a young Norse Viking to do, knowing that his death was inevitable, and with not much hope in an afterlife? The answer was the kind of life lived, in the battles fought and in the wealth earned. And it was in that order, too. A famous name was greater than bravery, which was in turn greater than wealth. Wealth was just a side benefit, but not the ultimate goal. They all fed into one another, though. In the book, A Dark History, The Vikings, author Martin Doherty calls it word fame. Word fame led to status, which hopefully for the person in question would lead to remembrance after they died. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his translation of Beowulf, includes this line, quote, By worthy deeds in every folk is a man ennobled, end quote. So built into the culture is a sense of doom with the realization that there is no escaping your fate, but also the caveat and encouragement to live a life most worthy of this word-fame sort of immortality. So let's see how this plays out in the story of Sigurd. Now, Sigurd is one of those semi-mythical figures that has held a central place in Norse and Germanic mythology. Sometimes you might find his name as Siegfried, and he may have been inspired by an actual living human being at one point. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to take a look at the mythic Sigurd and his exploits. Sigurd appears in the stories connected to the Volsung saga of Norse myth, which tells stories related to the Volsung clan. And here's one version of his story. 
There once was a king named Volsung who ruled over the realm of Hunland. King Volsung was the greatest of all warriors, daring, skilled, strong, and fierce. His house palace was large and built around a great tree that stood at the center of a great hall. King Volsung had many children, as kings do, but the most noble of them were the youngest, twins named Sigmund and Signy. Signy was eventually married off to the king of Gothland, and everyone gathered in Papa Volsung's home, ate lots of food, and partied hard. Suddenly, in the midst of the revelry, in walks an old man. Long beard, broad hat, blue cloak, and only one eye. The old man carried a finely crafted sword and walked calmly to the tree in the middle of the hall. The old man plunged the sword into the tree all the way to the hilt and cried out, Whoever pulls the sword from the tree will not only get to keep the sword, but will also find that he never had a better friend in his time of need. And then the old man turned and left. All of the guests collectively realized that the old guy had been Odin, the Allfather himself, and scrambled to get to the sword first to try to pull it free. A cool sword and the blessing of Odin were too good of a chance to pass up. But no matter how hard anyone tried, no one could pull out the sword. Finally, Sigmund, son of King Volsung, stepped up and pulled. The sword slid out like the tree was made of butter. Now in time, Sigmund took his father's place as the king of Hunland and became a mighty warrior himself. One day, Sigmund was forced to fight off an invading army. Taking his Odin-given sword, King Sigmund fought with great strength and skill, killing many foes. Suddenly in the midst of the battle, Odin appeared once again in his old man form. Only this time, Odin carried his spear, Gungnir. Odin approached King Sigmund and attacked, saying, Sigmund the Volsung, your time has come. Sigmund's sword connected with Odin's spear, and the magnificent sword blade shattered. His success on the battlefield left him, and he finally received a mortal wound. Hours later, Sigmund's wife found him, fallen on the battlefield and just barely alive. When she tried to comfort him, Sigmund told her, Odin has seen fit to bring my days as a warrior to an end on the battlefield. Take care of our unborn son, as he is to be the mightiest Volsung to ever live. Here, take the pieces of my broken sword and reforge them into a mighty sword, and when the boy is ready. When he is ready, he will accomplish great deeds that will make his name live as long as there are bards on earth to tell the tale. And let me lay here until death comes for me. The queen stayed with the king until he died, and not long after was remarried to the king of Denmark. The queen also gave birth to her son and named him Sigurd the hero of our story. Meanwhile, in another part of the world, there lived a man named Hridmar. Hridmar was strong, wealthy, and the father of three sons, Fafnir, Otter, and Regin. The boys were taught the art of magic and soon were able to change their shape at will. Fafnir was strong and greedy and eventually learned how to turn himself into a monstrous dragon. Otter was a more gentle soul, he liked to transform into a river otter and catch fish all day at the river near a waterfall. Nothing on dry land interested otter, so that's what he did all day and night. Regan, well, Regan wasn't any good at the shape-changing thing, but he was good at working with metal and creating gold and silver objects. Also near otter's waterfall, there lived a dwarf named Andvari, who could also change his shape. 
and Vare liked to turn into a salmon and swim in the waterfall and eat all the smaller fish that Otter didn't eat, as one does. Well, one day, the gods Odin, Loki, and Honir were walking along together and spotted Otter, who was eating a big salmon. It was near dinner time, and the gods were hungry, and Loki, being Loki, threw a stone at poor Otter and killed him. The three gods ate the seemingly ordinary Otter and the salmon, and went on their way thinking nothing of it. Loki even carried the cool-looking Otter skin with him. The three gods continued on their way, and as night fell, they stopped at Hreedmar's house. Hreedmar courteously invited the three gods inside, but when he saw the otter skin in Loki's hand, he became enraged. You have killed my son, he said. Now I will have my vengeance, and you will pay for your crimes. Hreedmar signaled to Fafnir and Regan, and in a flash, Odin, Loki, and Honir were all tied up and placed in chains. That's right. The humans put the gods in chains. Odin protested, saying they had no idea that the otter was Hreedmar's son. Would Hreedmar accept a weirguild as payment for his son's life? Now, pause for a second. The word weirguild means man price, and was the blood money paid to the family of a victim by an attacker as compensation for injuries or the death of the victim. We'll talk about it more in a little bit. Hreedmar thought it over and told the gods that they had to fill the otter skin with gold and then provide enough additional gold to completely cover the filled otter skin so that not a single hair was visible. If the gods refused, then Hreedmar would kill all of them. Loki was sent, and he immediately went and caught Anvari the dwarf with the sea goddess's net. He forced Anvari to give him all the gold that Anvari had so conveniently hidden behind the waterfall. Anvari reluctantly agreed and brought up his treasure, including a magic gold ring that would allow Anvari to create more gold and would turn hobbits invisible. Okay, maybe not that last one about the hobbits. So Loki returned to Hreedmar's house with all of the gold plus the ring, and it was enough to pay the Weirgild. The gods were freed, but just before they left, Loki told Hreedmar and his sons that Anvari had cursed the gold saying that death and destruction would follow all who owned the, tre- owned the treasure. But the humans ignored the warning. Hreedmar took all of the Weirgeld gold and locked it in a chest, refusing to share it with his remaining two sons. This didn't sit too well with Fafnir, and in the middle of the night, Fafnir murdered his father. He claimed his father's treasure and his helmet of terror and took all of it to the cave at Ganita Heath. There, he transformed into a fearsome dragon and laid down on top of his treasure. Regan had fled in terror. Fast forward a few years, and Sigurd has grown up. There really isn't anyone like Sigurd. Like all good warrior hero's sons, he's the best at everything. And wouldn't you know it, but Regan turns out to be his tutor. Regan taught Sigurd how to speak many languages, to fight, and to be a prince but Regan couldn't help but push Sigurd to be greater than who he was. Regan asked, for example, why Sigurd didn't go out there to Ganita Heath and take on the dragon that protected a hoard of gold, since that would prove that Sigurd really was a Volsung and not just a child living off a famous name. Sigurd was angered at the insult, but listened as Regan told him the story of how Fafnir got all that gold in the first place. The two then reforged Sigmund's broken sword into a new, more powerful, and dragon-killing version of it and named it Gram. 
With the first swing of the sword, Sigurd, Sigmund's son, was able to slice an anvil cleanly in half. Student and teacher set out for Ganita Heath, where the dragon lived. Soon they found the path that Fafnir used each day to go down to the water to drink. Noting its size, Sigurd exclaimed that if the size of the path was any indication, Fafnir must have transformed into the largest dragon ever to walk the earth. Regan replied that that didn't matter much, and then showed Sigurd what he should do. Sigurd should dig a hole in the path, lie down in it, and then, when the dragon came, simply slice his underbelly up with his, with his sword. Then he would earn everlasting glory, fame, and honor. Easy peasy. Sigurd thought about it for a second, then brought up the perfectly logical issue of not drowning. If he was laying under this great big dragon when he cut its underbelly, the blood had to go somewhere, like, say, in the hole that he would be lying in. Regan got mad at Sigurd's cowardice, and said that if Sigurd knew of a better way to avoid the dragon's poison breath and stinging tail, then fine, do it. But your heart is soft and weak if you're worried about a little thing like drowning. Just kill the dragon and be done with it. With those words, Regan rode off and Sigurd began digging his hole. As he worked, he suddenly noticed that he was being watched by an old man, with a big beard, big hat, blue cloak, and one eye. Wonder who this could be. The one-eyed man asked Sigurd why he was digging his own grave, as he would drown in dragon's blood if he continued with his plan. Why not dig other holes that would lead off from this one? That way Fafnir's blood would drain away and Sigurd wouldn't drown. Man, whoever told you to dig just one pit is giving you treacherous advice. The old man then vanished, and Sigurd realized that, surprise, surprise, he had just talked with Odin. A short time later, Fafnir emerged from his cave and began slithering down the path that led to the water. His weight caused the earth to move and to shake, and the exhalations of his fiery venom echoed on the cliffs. He didn't see the slight depression on the path where Sigurd lay, but he definitely felt the pain in his belly when the hero plunged his sword up in up to the hilt. Just as quickly the sword was pulled away and his blood poured into the hole, covering Sigurd completely but draining off quickly into the side holes that Odin had suggested. Fafnir lashed about, searching for his enemy, until at last he spotted Sigurd, who had somehow gotten a safe distance away and was watching the dying dragon. Instead of trying to use that poison breath of his, Fafnir and Sigurd had a conversation. Fafnir asked who Sigurd was and stated that only his brother Regan would have put Sigurd up to something like this. Sigurd told Fafnir his name and stated that his courageous heart, his strength, and his sharp sword had allowed him victory that day. Fafnir helpfully told Sigurd about the curse that had been placed on his gold. Sigurd said, I would fear Anvari's curse and leave your treasure if, by leaving it, I could avoid my death. However, each of us is fated to die sooner or later, so to live in fear of death serves no purpose. It is far better to perform courageous deeds and win treasure, glory, honor, and fame. When Fafnir finally lay dead, Regan came back, praising Sigurd's courage and saying that this deed would earn Sigurd a kind of fame that would endure as long as there were bards to sing of it. The two went back and forth about the nature of courage, and then Regan asked that Sigurd roast Fafnir's heart for Regan to eat, because that makes total sense. Sigurd agreed, but burned his finger in the process. 
When he put his finger in his mouth to ease the pain, the dragon's blood immediately gave him the power to understand what the birds were saying, because why wouldn't it? The birds informed him that the dragon's blood had made him invulnerable, except for a very small spot between his shoulder blades. They also confirmed that Regan was going to betray Sigurd in order to avenge Fafnir's death and to get the gold treasure. Sigurd decided to listen to the birds, and he relieved Regan of his head. He then mounted his horse and rode off to have more grand adventures. Now, what I've just told you is only the first part of Sigurd's story. He goes on to have lots of adventures, winning battle after battle, but no matter where he goes, he is first and foremost remembered as Fafnir's bane, the hero who slew the dragon. Yes, the money and treasure all come as part of that, and are mentioned occasionally, but they are never the focus of Sigurd's renown. But think back to the story you just heard. In that story, we see Odin four times, as a visitor in King Volsung's hall, as a warrior on the battlefield, as a seemingly helpless old man in Hreidmar's house, and as a wise counselor to Sigurd. In the first instances, we can see a little bit of the flair for the theatrical by plunging the sword in the, into the tree. I mean, Odin could have just saved everyone the trouble and walked over to the king and said, Hey, your son is special. Give him this sword when he's older, okay? But that wouldn't sound so good in a song. The Odin on the battlefield is clearly leaning on his associations with the frenzy of battle and in the choosing of the bravest and best warriors to join him in Valhalla to prepare for Ragnarok. In Hreidmar's house, we see a reinforcement of the notions that the gods were not immortal in the same way the Greek and Roman gods were. They could be killed, and it seems that someone with a little magic in them was considered a serious enough threat to not cause trouble. And in the last instance, we see Odin's wisdom put on display in the digging of the other pits to prevent Sigurd from drowning. So the story gives some intrinsic insights into the nature of the gods in general, and Odin in particular. But there are a few other cultural pieces in the story as well. Note the presence of the Weregild, or blood price, that Hreidmar demanded and that Loki, Odin, and Honir fulfilled. The Weregild was one of those things that seems like it was put in place when the society at large realized that it was a violent one and that lent itself to quarrels and feuds. The Weirgeld was different depending on the status of the victim, but it was at least an attempt to keep the violence at least a little bit curbed. Sometimes the families of the victims would accept the Weirgeld, and that would be that, but sometimes the Weirgeld would not be accepted and fighting for revenge would take place. Now, feuds of revenge could go on for a long time and could be disruptive to Viking society. One way to avoid groups devolving into constant combat for revenge was the duel. There were two types of duels that occurred, the Einvigi and the Holmgang. The Einvigi was simple. Two combatants met up and fought. No holds barred, no rules. They simply got to the dueling ground and did whatever they could to kill each other. In later centuries, certain niceties would be followed, such as matched weapons or rules over what was and wasn't allowed in the fight. There might also be some association with the notion of a trial by combat in later years, where the victor would be seen as innocent or having some form of divine favor. Neither of these was the case with the Einvigi. All the Einvigi proved was that the winner won because of his own strength, cunning, and skill, and the loser lost because he wasn't as strong, cunning, or skillful as the winner. An Einvigi, along with the payment of a guild, would hopefully settle a feud, but that was not always the case. 
The Holmgang was a type of duel that was much more formal than the Einvigi. Cloaks were laid on the ground and two combatants fought on top of them. Each fighter was armed with a sword, a flimsy little shield, and maybe carried a second sword with him. Each also had a shield bearer that carried two additional shields that would be passed to the fighter when their original shield was broken. The two fighters would take turns striking each other, and combat stopped when blood was spilled on the cloaks. Whoever was most injured when combat stopped was declared the loser. Winners of a home gang duel would receive a payment from the loser, but if the loser was killed in the duel, the winner got all their stuff. Killing an opponent in a home gang duel was either a very lucky thing or a very skillful thing to accomplish, as the opponent, one, knew the blow was coming, and two, it had to be done with a single blow, since combat stopped at first blood. Fighters were expected to stand and take their blows in a manly fashion. Putting a foot off the cloaks was seen as flinching or yielding ground, while stepping off the cloaks entirely with both feet was the equivalent of cowardly fleeing a battle. One foot off the cloaks meant a fighter was being a little bit cowardly and needed to step up his game. Two feet off was grounds for derision and mockery. Being wounded and paying the loser's fee was preferable to taking both feet off the cloaks. The home gang duel eventually took on religious significance and was held in high honor. As such, there was no cheating and nothing that could influence the outcome of the battle was allowed. This included asking the gods or spirits for help or for a berserker to cast a special spell that blunted his opponent's weapons. It was one of the few instances in which death was rarely the outcome, and even if death occurred, the outcome of a home gang duel was not grounds for revenge killings. Usually, the winner and loser would be able to settle their dispute in a way that highlighted the courage and bravery that they had just displayed in the duel. The other thing that I'd like to point out is the attitude of both Sigmund and Sigurd to the idea of their deaths. In his last battle, Sigmund, who by this time has become an excellent and powerful warrior, could complain that he was slain in a pretty unfair fight with Odin himself, and yet he doesn't. He accepts it. He says, Odin has seen fit to end my days as a warrior on the battlefield, and he seems to believe it. This was the ultimate calling for warriors of that culture, to be chosen by the Valkyries to go to Valhalla, but to be chosen by Odin himself on the battlefield is an even higher honor. Sigmund's son Sigurd tells Fafnir the dragon that everyone is destined to die sooner or later, so why fear death? It's coming for everyone, no matter what you do, so instead, go and be courageous and get all the treasure, glory, and honor that you can. And, if all goes well, you will get the only form of immortality that the Norse Vikings ever knew, everlasting fame. And remember, fame brings renown, renown usually brings riches. To give riches away was especially noble in the Anglo-Saxon communities, both before and after Christianity made its way slowly into their culture. Which brings us to the poem of Beowulf. Now, Beowulf is an epic poem written around 700 AD by an unknown English author. The story itself is a pagan one, but the author who wrote it down for history was a Christian who blended his religion in with the telling of the story. Christianity by this point had been, had been around for about 100 years, and later on, when King Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries and their libraries in the 1530s, pagan literature like this was mostly disposed of. It was seen as a waste of the good Christian's time to read or study anything like this. 
Yet the story of Beowulf survived, and elements of it have been proven true and accurate in the archaeological records that we have today. But we'll get to that in the next episode. Now, though it was written down by an English Christian, Beowulf is, at its heart, a Scandinavian story with Germanic leanings. Here's my version of the story, borrowing from J.R.R. Tolkien's translation and from other translations. There once was a mighty king of the Spear Danes named Skild. Skild was a good king, fighting for his people, giving gifts and mead freely in his hall, and causing friends to love him and foes to fear him. Skild had a son named Beo, who also was a good king, and continued doing what his father had done. In time, Beo himself had a son and named him Hrothgar. Hrothgar continued the tradition of being a good king that was well loved by his people. Hrothgar built for himself a great mead hall, studded with gold and jewels, and named it Harorot, which means the hall of the heart, and heart here being the old word for a deer or a stag. It wasn't long before Harorot becomes THE place to party. People came from far and wide to hang out at Harorot, and there was much rejoicing. Apparently times were so good at Harorot that sorrow, the unhappy fate of men, was not to be found. And that's when disaster struck in the form of a monster. Grindel, a fiend from hell, arrived and watched from the misty moors the partying that happened night after night and despised it. Day after day, Grindel watched and waited. One night, he slunk up to the mead hall and peeked in. The party had died down and the monster saw the warriors asleep around the hall, their senses clouded by the mead they had just drunk. Suddenly, in a rage, Grendel mercilessly reached in and grabbed thirty of the warriors closest to the, to the door and dragged them out into the night. For twelve years this continued. Grendel's monstrous attacks led to Harorot being almost abandoned, and the many brave warriors that used to live there shook with fear. Bards sang of the hopeless war that the Spear Danes tried to wage on the monster, and the story spread to the surrounding lands. Finally, the story reached the ears of the Stormgeats in a place called Geatland in what is now southern Sweden. Beowulf, the greatest of the Geats, gathered fourteen of his bravest warriors, and together they set sail for Hararot to defeat this monster. When they arrived, the Stormgeats were gladly received by Hrothgar and the rest of the Spear Danes. Beowulf then begins to list his many accomplishments that he has earned from the days of his youth. He has won honor with many daring deeds. He has returned bloodstained from battle after desolating the race of monsters, or slaying water demons by night. He has endured bitter need and destroyed everything that was hostile to his people. And now he is here to clean Hrothgar's land of this evil creature. This all sounds nice, and the resume is certainly impressive. But wait, there's more. Our hero has heard that this Grindel monster doesn't use any weapons or armor, and so, Beowulf, being the good sport that he is, will not use any weapons or armor either. Nah, instead he'll go WWE-style and wrestle the monster in order to kill it. If he wins, he'll be known far and wide as the killer of Grindel the monster. If he loses, well, if he loses, the king won't have to worry about feeding him anymore, or even burying him for that matter, since the monster will eat him. But, Beowulf says... Weird goeth as she must. The Stormgeats throw a party in Harrowrot Hall to draw Grendel out, 
and wherein Beowulf again proclaims, I am as strong and courageous as Grendel. I could easily slay him with my sword, for he is not skilled in the use of weapons. But since he fights without a sword and a shield, so shall I. May God award victory to the one of us he chooses. Well, he certainly doesn't lack for confidence, does he? The plan worked, and Grendel slinked up to the hall and peeked in. Everyone was asleep. Grendel burst in the door with murder in his heart. He was going to slay everyone here, or so he thought. For fate, well, fate had another destiny in store for him. Grendel quickly ate a warrior, tearing him to pieces, and then he stalked over to where Beowulf lay sleeping. Or, should I say, where Beowulf was pretending to sleep. Because our friend Beowulf had laid awake all night in preparation for right now. When Grendel reached down and grabbed him, the mighty Geatlander latched on to Grendel's arm and would not let go. Well, this was different. This was terrifying to Grendel. He tried to get away, but Beowulf refused to let go. The two fought back and forth, trashing the mead hall and knocking over the walls. The other warriors either ran, shook in terror where they lay, or aimed ineffectual blows at Grendel when they could. Through it all, Beowulf refused to let go. Finally, with a heroic pull, Beowulf tore Grendel's arm from his body. Grendel fled in pain back to his lair, knowing that he was finished. Beowulf, still holding Grendel's arm, mounted it on the wall in Hararot so that all could see it. Fame and glory were now his. Hrothgar and his people celebrated and partied even harder. The bards began comparing Beowulf with Sigmund the Volsung, the father of Sigurd in our previous story. King Hrothgar said, From this time forth, Beowulf, I will love you like a son. As long as I live, you will never want for wealth. I have given great treasure to weaker warriors for less service. Your deeds have given you fame that will live forever. May God continue to give you a good life. Now eventually Beowulf fights and kills Grendel's mother who comes after him for vengeance. And after that he is made king and reigns for 50 years before taking on a dragon and cutting it in half. Unfortunately, King Beowulf himself dies while slaying this beast, very much like Thor is fated to die while killing Jorgamander the world serpent. Here again, note some themes. There's the callback to Sigmund, comparing the hero Beowulf with the prior old king, and that implies that Sigmund's memory lives on through the centuries down to Beowulf's time, and that the unknown English author of Beowulf knew the stories of the old Volsung king well enough to insert it into his narrative. Christianity is present in this story too, but in reading the story it feels as if it is an afterthought somewhat. It is there, though, which can at times be tough to reconcile with some of the monsters and supernatural elements in the story. Grendel is described as an offspring of the biblical Cain, who murdered his brother Abel. Now, Grendel is only described as a monster in the translations that I have, but it's not hard to make the association between his monstrous nature and the monstrous deeds of his alleged ancestor in Cain. All we know for certain is that his hide is tough enough to withstand normal weapons, his strength is enough to tear many men to pieces, his speed is enough that he can quickly kill 30 strong warriors, and that his size is enough to be able to lift a man from the ground. Note also the early form of chivalry that Beowulf limits himself with. His enemy does not wear armor, so he does not wear armor. His enemy does not fight with weapons, therefore Beowulf refuses to fight with weapons. It's a very, very early form of the not-as-yet-thought-of code of chivalry 
that would come to influence the European continent in the centuries to come. In this story, though, it's easy to see that Beowulf is hoping that this foolish bravado will earn him even greater fame by limiting himself to leave no doubt as to his physical and martial prowess. He has a reputation to uphold at the very least, as can be seen by his listing of his accomplishments upon arriving at Hararot. Finally, note once again the role that fate plays in the story. Beowulf reasonably suspects that this battle could very well be the end of him, but instead of shying away from the risks, he accepts them. He seems to revel in the thrill of the coming battle, cavalierly saying that God will award victory to whoever he chooses in the battle, and Weird would go wherever she must. Now, Weird is a concept that we've talked about before on this podcast, just with a different name. The Weird, spelled here as W-Y-R-D, corresponded to the Norns, or Fates, that we talked about in the last episode. So, Beowulf saying that Weird will go as she will is his acknowledgement that he can only do whatever fate has planned for him. Beowulf understands what we are talking about in the last episode about choosing how to meet his fate. He is facing his fate as a brave warrior should, without fear and with a little bit of bravado thrown in. What is interesting is the juxtaposition of Beowulf's belief in the power of God with the unyielding nature of the fates in everyday life. By the time his story was written down from the oral tradition, Christianity had made some inroads with the Scandinavian peoples, but there was still a long way to go. The new religion was trying to establish itself in a land of pagan gods and idols like Thor and Odin, who we have already discussed, and in which sacrifices of animals and humans took place. Now, most of the time, criminals, outlaws, and sometimes slaves were used in those human sacrifices, but an Islamic scholar named Ibn Fadlan records the ritualistic rape and sacrifice of a young woman to aid in her dead master's passage to the next life. In Viking society, worship of the gods was more of a personal thing practiced individually rather than the corporate formal worship of Christianity. As such, it was not uncommon for the gods to be both yelled at and cursed for not answering a particular prayer offered to them. It was also not uncommon for a people to come and fall prostrate on the ground before a statue or idol, begging for some sort of favor. This familial relationship with the gods would have been quite at odds with the formal worship found in the cathedrals and monasteries throughout Europe. So, we have a group of people who believe in the unalterable nature of fate in their lives and would love nothing else in the game fame, glory, and wealth. Their myths encourage the idea that they must do great and glorious deeds in order to fight with the gods in the afterlife. They have a reputation of great skill and prowess in battle and don't shy away from it. They are excellent shipbuilders and explorers. And in 793 AD, they pointed their ships west and sailed toward the northeastern coast of Britain. They were heading for a little island across the North Sea, a little island called Lindisfarne, where they would enter history. And that's all for this episode of the History on the Side podcast. As always, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through Facebook or Instagram pages, or by visiting www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time in Norse Code Part 3.